0: Welcome to New Books and Critical Theory. So on this episode, I'm talking to Nicholas Hengen-Fox about reading as collective action, which is his new book. He uh, currently teaches literature, writing, and social justice at Portland Community
1: College over in Oregon. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Dave. I'm so excited to be here. I've listened for a long time. Oh,
0: thank you. That's good to hear. This couldn't be more immediately relevant, I think, given the current uh, political uh, context. And it's quite strange that uh, given how long it takes for an academic book to appear, that uh, reading as collective action would be, you know, kind of so of the moment and so so now. Um, one of the things that is, is clear from the project uh, that underpins it is that it's been a long running um, set of research interests. I guess one way to introduce the book and to talk about its immediate relevance is to put it in the context of that kind of longer term bit of work that's led to it. So maybe you could kind of introduce the ideas and and yeah that kind of long gestation that the book has had for the listeners
1: uh yeah um i'll try not to give you the really long boring story but um the the short version is that um as a when i was starting graduate school i got interested in this idea and i was sort of inspired by one of the uh, folks i was working with at uva uh jerry mcgann that like you could understand texts um kind of as something more than text, um, which, you know, was not a, it was probably not a radical idea when I encountered it. Um, but it was, it was really transformative to me. And so I started to be interested in how texts lived in the world. So I wrote about poems on the subway and things like that. Um, when I continued on, um, later on sort of studying, you know, deep going deeper into sort of Marxist theory and critical theory, um, I I maintained that interest in sort of the material experience of texts in the world. And I think I was always looking for ways um, to kind of find texts outside of just what I might do with them or how I might interpret them. So this project is, in a way, kind of me searching, you know, for different ways to encounter people reading books and reading them in ways that kind of like a professional culture worker like me would not read them.
0: I guess this is summed up really neatly in this, um, subtitle of the book texts as tactics. Um, and, and I guess that is the kind of, um, almost the motif, um, of moving us away from not, it's important obviously to think about how texts say things, um, but, you know, to move us more to where and, and to whom, um, is kind of using texts.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that that idea, and um, I, I, I will admit that I did not imagine having to say texts as tactics over and over again when I wrote that. Um, it's it's quite a tongue twister. Um, I wanted it to be the title, and the press was like, "No, it cannot be the title." And I was now I see why. Um, uh, yeah, absolutely. And I like I, I you know I I think it took me a long time to sort of move away from looking for uh, what I as a kind of a teacher and a critic am am trained to see as good readings you know like high quality interpretive readings and understand that there's like truly a lot of different ways that people engage with and interact with texts and that there's a lot of value um, in those so whether that's the sort of uh, thoughtful interpretation, like of, uh, somebody in a sermon, um, which we can talk about later, or whether it's a person who read the first 10 pages and was like, I, you know, I, I, get this, but it's not my thing. I'm going to talk about it with, uh, some other folks, um, and just use it as a way to sort of channel my experience. Um, I think those, those, ta- that kind of tactical approach to reading is, is interesting and really merits more attention, um, from academics than it's received. Yeah.
0: I mean, I mean the, the other thing is the, what would I say, the kind of politics um, of the idea of um, thinking about tactics because I, I suppose kind of situating reading um, and texts in a, in a social set of practices is one element of what the book is doing, but the other is this idea about um, the text as being capable of changing the world. So it would be interesting um, to know the, uh, I guess, the kind of um, the aim um, of introducing this more social vision of the mm-hmm. text.
1: Well, there's a lot of really great writing um, that was coming out while I was working on it about kind of like the affective dimension, right? Like we're, we're I think it's, it's not surprising to hear people say, oh, this book made me feel this way. Or, you know, like um, Timothy Aubrey wrote a great book called reading as therapy, Um, about sort of how middle-class readers uh, affectively engage with texts, But I was interested in sort of uh, that more political turn. So looking for ways maybe that books engage in. And throughout the book, I use Nancy Fraser's ideas um, as one of the kind of guides of sort of recognition, uh, representation and redistribution. So how books can play a role in sort of fighting for justice. So, and I think that's really um, like kind of to your question, like that's the idea of politics that the book tries to pursue um, is looking for these like concrete ways that we can say, not just, um, you know, this was, this poem has a radical formal innovation, therefore it is political, but rather to say like, well, this poem showed up in this place and was seen by this many people who normally don't read poetry. And in that context, it would appear to be engaging in an act of, you know, recognition or this Poem help, allowed this group to get a, a grant, which allowed them to do this, which is an act of redistribution. So when we look at some of the case studies, I can I can be more specific, but um, that idea of really grounding politics, not just in, um, you know, kind of grand claims that because text, you know, does something or says something, it is sort of a priori political and rather to say like, I saw something happen due to the way this person was using the text. That's sort of where I'm trying to ground the political intervention.
0: Yeah, and, and that um, elements of kind of Nancy's phrases work runs throughout the three case studies, and, and it's interesting. I mean, I say case studies, but you know, the, the book is structured around these three uh, types of, of of use of text, and then um, there's a really interesting more theoretical um i guess kind of concluding moment in the text which i, I found a, a really useful way of structuring um the book because as you just gestured towards you know it's much easier to kind of see these ideas play out in practice and then reflect on them theoretically and i guess the, the really obvious place uh, where that comes and the response to September 11th which is is the first chapter of the book and I I guess the big question is kind of like how and why was poetry important after September 11th before we even begin to think about the kind of tactical reading that gives recognition and, and representation
1: um yeah so I was actually I just um weirdly for the first time ever I just sort of taught a version of this chapter um with a, a class that I'm teaching about the literature of social protest, So it brought to mind that I probably, when we talk about September 11th, need to say like, kind of hit the historical reminder button a little bit. Um, you know, it was, it was a long time ago now. It's, it's sort of historical. So after September 11th as as you know, and I'm sure many people here will uh, listening would remember like uh, which my students did not remember. Um, uh
0: wow that, that that makes it seem like a lot longer ago than it it feels in because it's you know obviously part of kind of living cultural memory for a certain generation but i guess yeah um for, for younger younger people it, it isn't so yeah
1: yeah i mean some of my a few folks in the class actually had not been born um which was was yeah kind of yeah it made me feel old uh among other things but um so after September 11th, there was this, you know, really uh, in the U.S., this really um, sort of vitriolic um, kind of Islamophobic um, thread that that sort of lit up immediately in the cultural fabric. And there were... Um, You know, I write about in the book, there were, you know, immediately journalists were being attacked for criticizing the president. Journalists were fired. Um, College professors were disciplined um, for giving public speeches uh, about motivations for terrorism, trying to sort of explain some of the whys. Um, TV programs were canceled due to lost advertising. I mean, this is like a really hard time to sort of say things that I think now it's More common to hear people say like, well, September 11th was, you know, tragically a result of some geopolitical behaviors of the United States, you know, it wasn't, it didn't just come out of nowhere. Um, But at at that moment, it was really, really hard to find kind of resistance, especially. Um, And so... I got interested um you know in that context I got interested in like well was there any way that literature was resistant and I initially discovered people talking a lot about the Auden poem September 1st 1939 um you know which is this you know beautiful and terrible poem by Auden um about the, the Nazi invasion of uh, Poland um but it, it's really redolent, um with September 11th uh, it, it evokes um, you know, a number of really specific sense kind of analogies, the, the the smell of death and, and, um, towers and a lot of other stuff. And so, um, I was like, hi, huh, I wonder if there are other poems out there. And so using my kind of, you know, uh, academic training, I started digging through databases and sort of perusing, um, you know, where else were poems showing up? What I found was like, there was a lot of poems uh, sort of circulating in strange ways after September 11th, um, in the journalistic accounts of it, people keep saying their poems everywhere, everywhere. And I mean, you know, I think that's hyperbole obviously, but it was, there were certainly a lot of poems being published in a lot of places uh, that they wouldn't normally be published, um, including Auden's poem, but as I discovered many other ones, like ranging from, you know, Shakespeare to Seamus Haney translating Philoctetes to, you know, like just all over the map. Um, and so I kind of gathered this big archive of texts that were published in those couple of months afterwards and tried to look at what they were doing or saying kind of as a group. And I don't know if I don't use Williams like structure of feeling in the chapter, but I think for a lot of folks, it kind of, that's sort of, that was where I was sitting a little bit. Um, I used I used Williams, um throughout the book and he's certainly like an inspiration to this project. But anyway, so, uh, so this poem, this chapter writes about all these poems and tries to sketch the ways that, you know, people were maybe using poetry to give particular voice, um, to concerns about this sort of hyper trophic nationalism. Um, and this particularly this is Islamophobic, um, sentiments that were so prominent in the culture at that moment. I mean, do, do you want to draw on a couple of
0: of examples, obviously, because there's three poems uh, in particular.
1: Yeah, but um, one poem that uh, probably everyone remembers, uh, Mary Baraka's "Somebody Blew Up America," which he wrote right after the attacks, and it sort of blasted through um, the media um, largely because it was accused of um, anti-Semitism, um, which is a you know a thread in his work. Um, and uh, so I, I, I write about that a little bit, but I, I try to contextualize Baraka in this larger um, spread, which includes, um, I write about a poem by Lorna Di Cervantes called, which she originally titled Palestine. It's since been republished um, under a separate title. Um, and then also this poem by a, a poet, a fairly obscure poet named Sam Hamad, who, you know, his, his poem after the funeral of Assam Hamadi was, he read it on NPR about a month after September 11th, but this was a poem that he'd published in the seventies with a small press in Wisconsin. So it was this weird kind of collection, but all of these, um, these three poems, I argue in this larger network of poems kind of give, make claims for sort of representation, particularly of the experience of like being a person of color. And they all speak specifically about, you know, the experiences of Muslims, um, after September 11th. Um, so the, you know but instead of like going really deep on my readings of the poems, what I really tried to do is show the ways that they were probably kind of, you know, in this moment in conversation with other texts. So, um, just to give an example without talking much about the poems, um, de Cervantes is a, is a pretty well, I think a pretty well-known poet, like definitely a sort of in the world of poetry, right. Um, she published this poem on about.com, this is not a place where most scholars or most poetry um, scene participants go for poems, I think I think it's fair to say. Um, so, you know, I was interested in the way that like, how did that show up on about.com and how did Hamad's poem being read by him uh, on NPR, again, a place we don't necessarily go for poetry uh, if we're in the world of sort of literature and literary arts, um, how did these sort of give voice beyond um, those universes? What, um, you know, those three poems are sort of at least where they sit in that larger space.
0: I, I don't draw too much of a, of a distinction between, um, that analysis and then the second example on the second uh, case study but I, I suppose there we're talking i mean it, it, it's interesting to use the term structure of feeling but you know we're talking about a set that maybe are you know uh, imputed to um this particular historical moment whereas the second chapter has got a much more kind of practical um focus because there's a effectively i guess a kind of um community organization that has you know kind of funding attached to it has a project and, and is dealing with um you know a, a kind of um set of obviously emotional and, and effective but also really practical concerns so so uh, i guess the, the the moment here is kind of the story of the big read and the jackson services fair
1: yeah um so i think yeah and i I actually think it's it's fair to draw a pretty big distinction. I mean one of the things I realized in in the September 11th chapter was the first part of the book I wrote. Um, I realized and I, I write this in the, a little bit about this in the book, like kind of trying to make that process visible a little bit, but I, I said, you know this is just I'm still too much in the space of me reading texts and trying to interpret their cultural meanings. you know and so I wanted to kind of go out and like encounter some people reading um, people who weren't really a lot like me. Um, so it is, I think they're, they're substantially different. Although I, I I try to argue that these are different ways of studying and thinking about, um, how people use books, uh, to, to make political change. And so, yeah, I think they're different, but related. Um, so yeah, so I, I got some grant funding and I went, um, I used the big read, which is a national endowment for the arts funded kind of one book, one community pro reading program, um, which I think are, I don't know. Are they common in in the UK as well?
0: Um, not in the same exact way, but yeah, there's a there's a kind of um, set of sort of community literature projects. Yeah, but not as kind of as, as as national as as the the NEA programs.
1: Yeah, they become. I think they become increasingly common. And I mean, I think you know, there's a part of me as an academic that sort of wants to, you know, defaults to the snobbiness about it. But I also think they're like, they're really cool and interesting. Um, in the book, I have some critiques of how the NEA and how the Big Read talk about reading, and particularly the way that they use the word community to elide uh, a lot of differences. But um, anyway, I
0: I mean, this, with things like the BBC were exactly those um, notes of caution that, that you draw about who the NAA thinks of public is play out really kind of, um, yeah, in very similar ways, actually.
1: Yeah. Um, and so I use them as a, as a way to sort of identify groups. So this was in 2009. Um, we're at that moment of the, you know, the sort of, uh, the great recession is sort of not yet named the great recession, but seems to be moving in that direction. Um, so I went to these two communities that were reading, um, John Steinbeck's, the grapes of wrath, um, as these one book, one community reads and tried to figure out what's going on. So I write about uh, Jackson, which is a pretty small town in Michigan, about an hour and a half West of Detroit. Um, and then I also write in that chapter about uh, Knoxville, Tennessee. Uh, they were both reading the book. Um, different things were happening in both places, but in the chapter I use examples from both. Um, so the Jackson services fair was the kickoff event for this one month, uh, one book, one month thing. Um, and it was just I wanted to write about it in detail and um, because it was such a, it's so not what most people think about when they think about books. Um, This entire, this event, so it's in a high school gym. um, You know, there's people playing the Dust Bowl ballads by Woody Guthrie. Um, There's some people like dressed up a little bit in sort of 1930s style. Um, The library is there um, with this giant like soup pot cooking over an open fire fit like a made out of soup cans so like collecting food um for people who are in need um so there's this like literary art culture thing happening but then mixed into it are all of these um kind of like social safety net organizations um ranging from I was gonna pull up my list here, but I think I can do it from memory a little bit, but like ranging from groups that could help you get advice about how to avoid foreclosure to big brothers, big sisters, to groups that do kind of like, uh, you know, small uh, short-term loans to help people cover bills or whatever. So I thought this was a really fascinating intersection between literature, right? The reading of this like classic, um, you know, dead white guy novel, um, with a bunch of people being in this space where, yeah, they're talking about books, but they're also talking about how to get their immediate needs met. So that's, you know, that, the chapter tells the story of kind of a bunch of the interactions that sort of sp- kind of link off of that moment or the idea that, um, and this is where the kind of the Habermasian thinking comes in, that there are networks that are created um, out of spaces like that.
0: And those networks give rise to kind of claims about, I guess, practical material redistribution. Actually, you know, um, really things that I guess are quite contested in American politics at the moment.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I think some some of the when the book was going through the review process, a lot of uh, not a lot, some of the reviewers were critical of the idea that there was um, that there was, you know, actual like that. This claim about redistribution was legitimate and. I I think a big part of what I'm trying to do in this chapter is adjust the scale like redistribution matters for a person who's hungry when they get a free lunch that that's redistribution and I'm sorry you know that, that that that's the scale we have in the US right now but that's a meaningful scale. Um, So, yeah, so like there's very practical ways, right? People came and and got food and took food with them. There was free transit to come to the fair, Um, you know, and it was the library was a big part of the organization, but so were some community organizers who had pretty radical commitments. So I think there was a lot of really good thinking about the intersection between the text um, and the and and uh, you know the needs of the community, but just to give you an example of like how that uh, so there's like that very practical material redistribution in that moment, um, an example of kind of the way that's right. So subsequently, one of the people who helped to organize the um, fair is a, a minister. She gives two sermons over the course of the month, sort of talking about the grapes of wrath. The church hosts a book group discussion where sort of older folks and younger folks in the congregation are talking um the sermon links specific layoffs Um, and again this is michigan so we're talking about you know the kind of collapse of the auto industry in these towns um sort of where she enumerates and and you know this is that moment of you know representation of saying like you know 100 people in our community lost their jobs when this this Air filter plant closed. So she talks about it in this in the sermon. Um, one of the congregants is one of the organizers of the service fair. Another one of the congregants is a woman who takes photos. So she takes photos of these women who've used commutes, these small community grants, um, makes them public. They're displayed in the library with texts sort of talking about these women's experience in the community and their experiences uh, living in and moving through poverty. Um, Well, those photos get picked up by their House of Representatives uh, rep, who takes them to Washington, D.C. with the, you know, with the Community Action Agency head to make the case for more federal funding for community. So, you know what I mean? I can go on and on. But there's ways that these experiences sort of ramify through time and space, um, and continue to build up more and more claims for redistribution and other things.
0: It, I, I'm, I'm just it, you sort of made, made me think actually, of, although these practices are, you know, very kind of material and, and, and very political. You you sort of shift focus again, actually, um, in in the third chapter. And and one of the things that fascinated me was was the kind of reflexive moment in the third chapter. Um, Both, you know, the September 11th and the the big read examples, I guess, would be quite standard academic territory to look at, you know, a kind of a a moment within cultural history and then, you know, a set of uh, practices responding to... um, a particular financial emergency through uh, reading and th- through a text. But in, in the third chapter, you, you you sort of turn the lens back on the institution that is you know mediating the production of this this kind of knowledge, asking questions about how the campus can actually be involved in these um, or in, in the need and the demand for, for a response to our current political moment. And I suppose you, you sort of set up a, an opposition between, on the one hand, um A set of practices that you've tried to kind of encourage perhaps through your 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 teaching and your responses to in, individuals of text and then the way that you know the kind of the American system is doing things through service learning and and i i think it's it's really kind of fascinating to hear the story of um text as as tactics turned back inward to the institution that usually would be kind of almost absent or you know kind of a a ghost at the table in, in a lot of, uh, the research that went into chapters one and two.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I think initially in my conception of the book, it was not, I wasn't going to talk about, you know, higher ed at all. Like I am interested in these sort of non-professional cultural workers. Right. And as soon as we come onto campus, it's like, well, we're back in this space, but, um, you know, I, I, I did, I, I love, I care so much about teaching and I love doing it and I, I did want to write about it. Um, but I do want to give a shout out to like, especially the folks in Jackson and Knoxville who, you know, they sort of shaped the way that I build this assignment. So, yeah, I mean, I don't want to be too pessimistic about the current um, political and cultural environment. um, But I think it's really common, I think in my classes, and I'm sure in many people's classes that when we read stuff, we, you know, there's just these, this, this weight that we're all carrying around, right? Like um, my students are worried that, you know, their families are going to get deported or that they're going to get deported by ICE agents. Like it's tough to come to class and do good work when you're, when you're like that, um, when you're in that place. And and so um, part of what I'm hoping that this assignment does is give students a way to identify agency. Again, even if it's sort of small agency um, an agency to sort of do things. So uh, in that chapter, I write about a literature class I teach called working class literature Um, and two projects in particular from that class where students, the, the assignment, basically the final project asked them to make our work public somehow in that chapter, I guess I could tell you a million different stories, but, um, there's the, the ones in the book are in great detail, but I'll just, I'll mention a couple of things that students do and and try to link that back to this idea of like not being totally pessimistic. Um, Students often take this reading that we do in class, you know, we read, we interpret, we do the things probably, you know, most literary literature classes will do. And then students think, okay, like how do I get this out there? So uh, for their final project, some students have organized film screenings where they screen some of the films from our class um, and then talk with others about them, about sort of how that, how class and, Um, you know, nation shape these characters' lives. Uh, One student did a beautiful thing where they um, created a, um, like, a display table for their community, um, like, their county library that sort of focalized uh, working class literature, which um, I think most libraries, that's not, like, front and center of their their mission. Another student did a, um, like, a zine um, where she sort of illustrated... Uh, and then distributed these small quotes and pieces from some of the readings and from some other readings that she's done. So, you know, these are not seen as, like, traditionally, uh, you know, final paper kind of projects, Um, but I argue in the chapter that students did a ton of really important work to choose the texts, right, to uh, interpret them, to think about the modes of distribution that would bring people into contact with these ideas and with these texts that, you know, they otherwise would likely never find. So I, I think there's a space there that where students seeing their own agency and their own ability to create something in conversation with the stuff that we're reading and not just to create it in conversation with me or in conversation with a class, but in conversation with sort of a wider set of publics. Um, I think that's a space where we can really identify like some hope and some agency and say like, yeah, the reading range, however small, um, you know, in in, in, the, in this context, largely focusing on kind of recognition and representation in other spheres. Um, there's a second part to your question about service learning, but I wanted to pause and say, like, does that that make sense kind of?
0: Well, I, I, I'm just thinking, actually, that, that is quite an optimistic um, note. Um, and obviously the kind of discussion of serv- service learning is, you know, a kind of critical engagement of where institutions are not doing these things. And, and I wonder, actually, if we might kind of keep the spirit of optimism and think in terms of uh, the kind of major theoretical um, end of the of the book, because obviously um, Habermasian approaches um to you know communicative theory but also to the political have that same kind of moment of optimism within them, you know they critique the kind of systems that we have, you know they're kind of cautious about um the possibility for for social transformation for things like recognition, um, but also there is that kind of moment of optimism. So I think maybe we might go from the kind of set of practices that yeah your students were were engaged with in terms of making texts and making their work public to to, to consider where kind of Habermas fits in. And maybe actually, I mean, it's, it's obvious to me why uh, why his work was important, but yeah, maybe why his work was in so important to the text to the book.
1: Yeah. um, I mean, I think it's funny, like the, yes, the optimism thing is part of it. Right. Um, And I, I, I make a sort of, in the last chapter of the book, I do talk, I make an argument, um, a reading of Habermas, right. That sort of situates him in the sort of foundational moments of critical theory. Um, I'm not the only person to make that case, but um, I think it is a case that probably still needs to be made because I, I think a lot of folks are fairly dismissive of Habermas having you know, mostly read, you know, the the work of his that's most cited is the the public sphere the early public sphere stuff, which that's his dissertation. And, you know, if if all great thinkers were known only by the work in their dissertation, um, well, I don't know that there'd be so many great thinkers. Um <clears throat> he is um his subsequent work has has the idea of sort of communication, sort of non- uh, sort of outside of the idea that maybe if people communicate outside of trying to convince each other of things or try to sell each other things, um, that coordination and social change can happen. Um, and, you know, again, that does put him at odds with, I think, some of the pessimism that is, um, you know, that, that runs through the Frankfurt School uh, subsequent uh, to, you know, in that first generation, I guess. Um, so yeah, I use Habermas as a way to sort of talk through these, um, these networks and these, these sort of, um, spaces that are created. Um, I think, uh, I'll just make two quick points about where he's really useful. Um, one is that I think his notion of, uh, kind of the communicative life world. So like the negotiation of language that happens. So I gave that sort of long, strand of interactions that come out of the grapes of wrath in jackson that's a series of like a network of negotiations around language and around what to do and how to coordinate around language um and i think habermas's theory really does a beautiful job of helping us see theoretically what that means and how that works um but also i think where and this is why i think he's probably somewhat reviled, at least in my discipline, um, is because he also ties that to sort of, um, you know, the legal and, you know, he calls it juridical spheres, right? Where you, I think if you want to make change today in the world that we live in, um, in you know, to to channel Marx a little bit in the world that we've inherited and the conditions we've inherited, um, it has to involve Pushing towards those spheres, right? Um, that's not sexy. Um, it's not the sort of anarchist sublime, like revolutionary um, fantasy, but I, I think it's quite real. Anyway, so what Habermas does is he gives us a way to sort of ground the way those small exchanges, so a student's display in a public library, um, might change a conversation, might have a few more people using the word working class instead of, you know, calling people poor, um, might focus people's thinking on work to some degree and how work plays into these things. But to say, yeah, that these like small interactions are part of larger networks and part of what we might want to do if we believe in change and want to work for change is to try to identify those networks and how they're built. Uh, so I think that's, um, it's hard to talk about Habermas without going on and on because, um, as you know, his, his work is, um, uh, massive, uh, but I, that's that's kind of how I, I grab him, and and I know that there's a couple of just a footnote for folks listening. I know that there's a couple of new books that are soon to come out that do try to bring Habermas into conversations, particularly around literature and politics, more um, Jeff. Bosher, I think, is writing one that's going to come out with Bloomsbury. So there is some, you know, more folks that are thinking about Habermas in these terms, too, which I think is really exciting.
0: The, the sort of these, these podcasts is to kind of say, oh, you know, so what's your next project? Will there be a book? That kind of thing. But I, I guess one of the things I, I took away from from this book, both actually, you know, in, in your kind of use of um, the optimism in, in, in Habermas and, you know, that kind of um, hope that we might change discourses and descriptions um in american political life and the case study examples uh that you analyze i i guess that kind of makes makes me wonder is another book you know kind of appropriate i guess you know would kind of community organization and you know the the kind of the role of the teacher be be really where you'd focus your efforts Or, or or have you got you know a kind of close reading of poetry coming coming up
1: Right. Um, (laughs) um, yeah, you're, you're kind of looking into my soul here, but, um, yeah, I think that's, that's a question that I felt really strongly as I completed this project and I write about it a little bit in the last chapter, but just this feeling of like, well, I'm glad I wrote this down, but I'm not sure that, um, you know, it is important, I think to, to have people sort of writing and thinking about it, but yeah, probably that there's more to do, uh, out there in the world, um, I do have a, a, a sort of a visionary, a vision of what a next project might be, but it would probably not be an academic book. Um, I'd really like to, um, maybe do something more in depth where I work with readers and really talk to folks like some of the people I write in greater detail about their relationship to reading and their personal histories of reading. Um, to sort of try to, you know, I don't know, track out through part- the particular experiences, particularly of like, um, you know, working class people or, again, folks who are sort of not part of the traditional conversation around books. I, I, I'd like to track out more of how people interact with texts. But um, in the meantime, yes, a lot of what I've been doing is trying to collaborate um, with folks in my college, with folks in other um, kind of uh, public organizations around trying to think about how we help folks read to make change and how we take the reading that many, many people already do and help them kind of plug it into the work uh, of making a more just world that, that they value and that, that I and those organizations value too.
0: Thanks for listening to new books on critical theory. On this episode, I was talking to Nicholas Hengin Fox about reading his collective action texts as tactics.